0: and see how many show up. (laughs) It's just fact. It's just the way that it goes. Because what we say is, well, I can pray on my own at home. That's what I'll do. I'll spend that time praying then. Whereas there's something unique about when we have the opportunity as, as a group, as a small group or a large group, to corporately pray together because it aligns our hearts as a group with his heart so that we are of like mind and like faith. Um, we're, we're really leaving out Philippians chapter two, frankly. And so when you pray, my question is, do you pray? The, the, the next thing that Jesus shares is he shares two specific um, uh, prohibitions or Jesus prohibits two specific approaches to, to prayer, And the first you see in verse five, he talks about hypocrisy. When you pray, go in, or excuse me, when you pray, you are not to be like the, the hypocrites. Again, last week on giving and next week in fasting, he uses the same exact word of hypocrites. Don't be like the hypocrite when you give, when you pray, when you fast. And we have a connotation of that word, and this is where it comes from, but, but, but it's rooted in the idea of theater. Of people who would wear masks when they would put on a production or a play, and they were playing someone that, that's not who they really were. One commentator says hypocrisy is the idolatry of masquerading as piety. It's an actor, it's a poser, it's one who wears a mask in order to hide your true identity. Another way to put it is this When you pray, do you desire to be the star in that production? Do you want the spotlight really on you? Or even in the midst of prayer, when you are petitioning and asking God for things, you're still turning that spotlight onto him because of your dependence upon him. So he says, don't don't be the hypocrite. Don't do this to be seen. But the second thing is, don't use meaningless repetition. (laughs) So if the first thing is, don't do this to be seen, the second thing is, just don't do this to simply just to be heard don't use meaningless repetition. The issue at hand of what Christ is saying here in, in, verse, in verse seven, when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do or as the pagans do, for they suppose they'll be heard for their many words. What would happen in a pagan culture or with the Gentiles is with their gods that they would worship is they thought if I say the right number of words in the right order, in the right phrasing, almost like an incantation, like, a, like opening up like a spell, then I'm going to force the arm of, of, of this God and they're going to be forced to have to do what I do because I've unlocked the, the secret code. Some of you may remember the story in the Old Testament of the prophet Elijah. Remember when the prophet Elijah hadn't reigned in forever during that time and period? Prophet Elijah is actually going to go up against 500 bales of Prophet and 450 uh, prophets of Asherah. And they're going to have this showdown on, Mark, uh, on Mount Carmel. And on Mount Carmel, it's the one prophet of God versus the 500 prophets of Baal. And he says, We're going to have a competition here. We're, we're going to see whose God is the one true God. And we're going to have this sacrifice, we're going to have this altar here, and whoever can call out to their God and it will consume this, this sacrifice with fire, that's the one true God. And he says, you guys can even go first. And so the prophets of Baal, they begin to cry out to, to Baal and say, you know, they're, they're praying, they're, incant, they're doing incantations, all these different things. By noon, he still hasn't shown up. So Elijah's giving them from morning to noon is like, Do you, where's your God at? Is he, is, he, is he preoccupied? Can he not hear you? Like he, he's basically just kind of jabbing them a little bit of where, where is your God? And so from that point, because he chided them a little bit, the prophets of Baal now go into what's called babbling or stammering. And they're literally, it says, they're leaping or dancing around and they begin to cut themselves because they think, if I will do enough, then my God will hear me. Can I just stop here? Your God hears you. You may have some unconfessed sin. We know according to the book of Psalms, it's good to confess that. So there's that open line of communication. We know in 1 Peter, husbands, the way you treat your wives, God seems to kind of not hear your prayers if you're treating your wife not in an understanding way. So there are things that can be a blockade between us and our prayers to God. But when we come to God, he he hears us. And to me, that should be one of those moments of, you could read that in scripture or hear that statement that God, the creator of the universe hears you when you pray to him and you could go, that's great. It's like a postcard from the grand Canyon. It looks good, but I don't really know it because I've never experienced the presence of God on a daily basis where I get to commune with the creator of the universe I mean, so, so many of us—if there's like a celebrity or a star or an athlete that you're just fond of—if you ran into them, you'd be like, "Oh my goodness, I can't believe that I ran into this athlete!" And I'm kind of nervous, and I—I I, I wish I could get their autograph. And yet, we limit the idea of prayer with God of, "I'll get to it. I'll just get to it when I really need it." As opposed to understanding, you have the privilege to go before the King all the time. Do you pray? And when you do, don't do it to be seen. Don't be a hypocrite, to be noticed by the public. Don't do it to just simply be heard of meaningless repetition of trying to force the hand or the arm of God. Because sometimes if we're not careful, we've even turned the Lord's Prayer into meaningless repetition. We've turned the Lord's Prayer, and if I say these words that Jesus specifically gave me to say, and not realizing this is more of a guide than as opposed to say these words and you will get it's, no, 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 this is a guide of, are these principles, are these characteristics within the life of your prayer life? And so what you could be worried about is going, well, what if when I pray, I don't begin with our Father who art in heaven? Will he hear me? Again, it's, it's, it as the whole Sermon on the Mount has been, it's about your heart. It's about the affection of your heart to your God. And you know what? There's going to be sometimes when I pray, especially some of you remember when Tiffany had the accident. You know what I didn't do whenever I was on the phone with her and it just went silent? I didn't go, our Father who art in heaven. I was like, God, protect her. And that was it. Because I didn't know what else to say. I'm just crying out in that moment. God, please. Did I take the time to hallow his name? I, I didn't, but I'm crying out because he knows, he knows my heart. And so, yeah, this is a great guide. But, and I would say, yeah, follow it. But there's going to be moments in your life where you're not going to be able to go maybe through the whole thing. And that's why we don't want to be legalistic with it. But we want it to be a, a direction, a guide uh, for, for us for sure. The other thing that you might read is go, well, is he condemning here uh, repeating words in your prayer? And, and that's not the case. Again, the repetition that he's referring to is pagans who would pray in such a way to think that they're going to unlock something. It's kind of like if you grabbed my phone and you were like, I want to get in and you start pushing all the keys to try to figure out the code to get in. You think if you do enough different combinations, you might figure it out. You won't, but you keep trying to do whatever combination you can and hope that it unlocks. That's how we do. Sometimes that's how the pagans did, but sometimes that's crept within the life of the church of I say it the right way. Then he'll hear, then he'll respond. And he's saying, no, 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 that's that's not what it's about. In fact, don't be so concerned about the repetition of words. But but I will say this. I I do believe it's okay that when you are in the presence of the Lord because he knows your heart, and maybe you do repeat yourself a few times, you know if you're trying to do it in a way to where like, if I say this five more times, then he'll agree. It's, no, 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 no. I'm so burdened by this issue in my life or this need that I have that I can't help because it is so pervasive that I am just coming back again and again to this. I think that is okay. It's, are you trying again to force the arm of God? Or are you processing with God and you just happen to repeat yourself on a specific issue from time to time? And so he's not condemning that. He's just saying, just don't, don't do it in order just to try to force God's hand. So with, on, not, or on Jesus saying how not to pray, Two things. Don't pray to be seen by men. Rather know that your prayer will be seen by the one who you can't see, God. (laughs) He sees you. And don't pray simply just to be heard with meaningless words of repetition because you're thinking that if maybe enough people hear this, if they hear me on the street corner, then I'll be praised, then I'll have some attention. But realize that you can pray absolutely nothing aloud and God can actually do something about it. Did you see the end of verse eight? Look at the end of verse 8. Don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So the question might come why should I pray if God already knows what I need even before I ask him? And I would say, wonderful question. It's a good question to ask. Why should I even bother? He's God, he knows everything. Here's just a few reasons of why you should still pray. One, you, you are commanded to. <laughs> That's a good reason. Two, is to commune with God. You get to be in the presence of the creator. And when you're in the presence of one who is eternal, it gives you an eternal perspective on your temporal issues. On your everyday life issues. It's, it's giving you a proper perspective. And then three, it's recognizing I need God your dependence upon God. I always say those are just simply three reasons of why we should pray and then thank the Lord. He already knows what I need before I ask him. The sad thing is when we read that, maybe today, I've read it this way, I read that and I'm like, man, God, if you already know, why am I taking the time to pray? And I see it in a negative light. When Jesus is sharing that statement in verse eight, your father knows what you need before you ask him. He's saying that in an encouraging way of if you don't know exactly what to say, that's okay. God knows. But when you pray, pray. And maybe you forgot to ask for that loved one in that prayer. You're like, oh, no, I I didn't pray for that person's surgery. Now they're in trouble. And God's like, I got you. I know. I know. I'll cover it. So those are some ways of, of Jesus saying how not to pray, but now let's go into the Lord's prayer verses nine through 15. There's a man, a commentator by the name of John Stott. He says this about prayer. He says the essential difference between Pharisaic pagan and Christian praying lies in the kind of God to whom we pray. Again, your proper view of God determines your prayer life. In fact, I would even say this, not just your prayer life, how you view, understand God determines everything in your life. But we're looking at prayer today. The first two verses of the Lord's Prayer, you may have noticed this. I'm sure many of you probably even studied the Lord's Prayer at at length and in depth. But the first two verses focus on God. So, So the prayer begins with, let your prayer begin with a concern on God and his glory, not so much on you. Even get that perspective right of who it is that you're going to talk to. And so let's look at what real prayer is. Real prayer relies on real humility. Real prayer relies on real humility. It's, it's getting to a point of being, I, I need you and without you, I can't survive. It's in the same way when I went and saw the Grand Canyon, it was humbling, it was overwhelming. Wow, I get to see that. It's big. When you come before God, you recognize the grandeur and the majesty of who it is you're talking to. For some that might make you shrink back and go, I don't want to talk to him because he's so big. But the beautiful thing is that our father, our dad, literally it's Abba, daddy. It's this familial relationship that you have with him of, I can crawl up into his lap and he will listen to me. Just as we have a sweet baby just crawled up in the lap. It's just, it's just that tendency of just like, I need you. I depend upon you. There's maybe some fear and respect but, but, but I need you. And so when, when, when he begins to go through this prayer and we're relying on humility, here's some, here's some things that will humble you when you come before God. The first is this, if you would appreciate him as father, I think that will develop a sense of humility within you because you're overwhelmed that the God of the universe wants to have intimacy and fellowship with you. Remember our father who art in heaven, He's not your co-pilot. He's God. <laughs> so recognize there's this dichotomy between the two. He is God and he is your father. And those two can be in sync with one another. Notice that he's also our. This is something in this day and age that, that, that I preach and that I want to, to, to champion is that we don't come to saving faith in Christ as a group. It's not well, I'm saved, so you're all saved, and so we're all going to heaven. It's an individual personal relationship with Jesus. It's you as an individual recognizing God in his glory. He's so big. He's so holy. He's so set apart, and I'm a sinner, and I have separated myself from his holiness, and if something isn't done, I will forever and eternity be separated from a holy God but you've heard the gospel of Jesus that God in his great love for us sent his son that we might have forgiveness and atonement for our sin. And you personally respond to that. But when you do personally respond into saving faith and relationship to God, recognize your relationship is, yes, yours, but now he's ushered you into the church. He's not just your father. He is. He's our father. There's something even within these words and throughout, he says our and us, that there's a sense of, of corporate understanding that he's, he's our God as much as he's mine, he is yours. And so that connects us, that, that, that bridges a gap between us, regardless of what your gender is or your ethnicity is, or your socioeconomic background is, we are connected and he's our God. That's one of the beautiful things of the church, of how we can be connected with such a a variety of diversity and, and backgrounds. So a way to be humbled is we appreciate him as father. The second thing is we honor his name. We take the time when we pray to acknowledge who he is. Honor his name. Hallowed be your name. Lord, cause your name to be honored. Cause your name to be set apart your name and that culture, and it's the same for us today, your name represents your character, your personality, specifically on the issue of character. Some of you may have had this before. I've had it one time in my life of where my good name got dragged through the mud. It was sullied, and I did not like it. And it was one of those things of that's my name, and I represent the Reed name and the Reed family. And even though it's lies and not true, my name is being dragged through the mud because my name means something. Our names are important. We want them to be honored and to be respected. We don't want them to be dragged through the mud. So my question to you is when we honor the name of God, sometimes if we're not careful, we're more focused on uplifting and honoring our name than his name. And I think something that the early church grabbed onto in willing to go into the arenas of Rome and be lit on fire like polycarp or be pierced through the sword or to be martyred by lions is they said, not my will be done, your will be done. Not my name be honored, your name be honored. And I will never recant it because your name is to be glorified. We sing about it a lot. I want your name to be honored. I want your name to be glorified. John Piper puts it this way. When you pray this kind of prayer, you pray, Lord, do what you must do so that your name be glorified in my life. Do you pray like that when you pray? One, do you pray? Two, do you pray like that? Lord, do what you must do so that your name be glorified in my life. When you pray like that, you're humbling yourself before the king. The other way in which we humble ourselves is we anticipate his kingdom. He says, your kingdom come. It's this idea and this, this desire of, Lord, you showed up, the birth, celebrate Christmas. You lived your life on this earth. And when you did that, you, are, you did what we call you inaugurated the kingdom of heaven here on this earth. You died, but you defeated death. You rose again. And you say you're coming back. And we want to echo the words of John in the book of Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Do you long to see his kingdom come? Do you long to see the return of the king, the return of Jesus? Because when we do that, it gives us an eternal perspective of this isn't all that there is. But sometimes we live as if this is it. This is what to live for. And it's like, no, 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 no. I long for the king to come again. I anticipate your kingdom. And when you, when you believe that, that he will come again, and that the future is actually bright because he will come again, when you live and believe that to the conviction, to the core of who you are, what you believe about the future determines how you live in your present. What you believe about the future determines, and motivates, and moves of how you make decisions and conduct your behavior now. If you think it's all just lost and gone and bleak, then what is there to live for? But if I know that even if I go through my name being dragged through the mud, I go through physical difficulty, financial difficulty, whatever it may be, he's coming again. And if he doesn't, I'll be be in eternity with him. I have victory in Christ. So because I know that in the future, I can live accordingly in the present. Is your gaze fixed on he who is so big? is your proper view and understanding of that kind of God, the anticipation of of his kingdom. Next thing, as you would acknowledge his will, and this is a hard one at times. We even sang about it. Some of us know the story of Jesus in the garden the night before his crucifixion. He prays to God, his father. He's literally just stressed out, uh, sweating drops of blood because he knows what he's about to go and experience, not just physically, but being Uh, going through and and drinking the the wrath of God upon himself. He says, not my will be done, but yours. Again, that's a humbling thing to to sincerely believe and pray. May your will happen, God, not mine. I live in submission to you here and now. And when we do that, listen to me, regardless of your age, I think we all wrestle with this issue of why am I here? Why do, why do I exist? What's my purpose? I think we all wrestle with that, perhaps all of our lives. At different moments, it's harder than others. But when we come to recognize and we see God for who he is and how big he is, we go, I Man, if you're that big, your will be done. And when your will is done in my life, I will have purpose. I will have identity. I will have meaning. Your will be done in my life. So maybe could you pray this prayer? And this is a tough one to pray if you really mean your will be done, I interpret it this way. I wrote it this way. I invite you to conquer me. Conquer my dreams because you're bigger. Conquer my plans because you're greater. Conquer my desires because you're better. You're my desire. Hard thing to pray, especially when the desires of your heart are not met your will be done. That's humility. So he prays and the prayer begins of God's glory, but he ends with God's provision. Look look at what it says in verse 11. Verse 11, real prayer relies on his provision. Charles Quarles says this, when Jesus' disciples pray, he wants them to reflect constantly, constantly on their dependence on God for everything, for their survival, for their salvation, and for their sanctification. When he says in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread, it's saying, give me sustenance. Give me some food. <laughs> and this is a confession. And a confession is agreeing with someone, saying, I need you. I, I, I agree, that's what I need. I need God. And I don't just need God when the storm is raging. I need you every day. So that's why I say, when you pray, do you pray? Let's add on to it. Do you pray daily. Because as much as we need food every day, we need the Lord every day of our life, relying upon him, depending upon him, getting that proper view so that we can see the world that's in front of us and live it accordingly. This spiritual discipline sharpens you. The question might be is, well, if you're not relying on God, what do you rely on? What or who do you depend upon? It might be a relationship. It might be you find your identity or purpose in that child or that grandchild or that spouse. Those are great things, great people, great relationships. Or maybe you depend upon your abilities or your education. Or maybe the biggest thing that you hold to is your experience. Or maybe you look to the government. Or maybe you look to how how pretty you are, how handsome you are. Maybe you have street smarts. Maybe you're the funny guy. Maybe you're very religious or man, you've been working hard, you got that retirement and your bank account is set to go. And that, when you peel it all the way, those are the things that you maybe rely on the most. When instead we need to come back and say, all of this, my abilities, my experiences, my relationships, all of it is because of him. All of it is because of what he has provided in my life. And we would echo the words of, oh, I need you every, every hour. I need you daily daily. So real prayer relies on his provision. Real prayer also relishes his pardon. In verses 12 and then 14 and 15, he talks about forgiveness, forgiving our debtors, being pardoned. When you relish God's pardon for yourself, you should gladly extend pardon for others. What doesn't make sense is if you have been shown grace is that you would not demonstrate grace. That's an oxymoron. That's a contradiction in terms. If you've been shown grace, you should demonstrate grace. But what we struggle with is we know what it looks like for someone to offend me, and that is the most offensive thing for you to offend me. Do we realize how often and how, how big it is when we sin and offend God? Does that humble us and break us? And then do we marvel at the fact that I offended a holy God And yet, because I cry out to him and he willingly hears me, he will choose to pardon me. Sit in that for just a second. For those of you who have faith in Christ, you have been pardoned for all your sins. If that doesn't get your heart rate up just a little bit, something's wrong. Like something's off. Like it should be I have offended God to such a great degree, and yet I have salvation in him. It it should move us and and blow us away. And yet, for those of us who have faith in Christ, we go, so glad you forgive me, God. Maybe your heart rate did bump a little bit. You're like, yes, I have salvation in Christ. How he could pardon a sinner like me. And then someone offends you, and you're like, I don't know. They cut me off. Mm -mm. I'm going to drive up by them, show them a pleasant finger, and move about my day, because they need to know justice will be mine. There's a guy that went to John Wesley's church. His name was General Oglethorpe. Love that name. Name your firstborn Oglethorpe. He'll have a great life. General Oglethorpe. And Wesley was preaching on this text and talking about pardoning others and forgiving others as Christ has forgiven us. And he says, I never forgive. And I'm about to mess it up. Wesley says, then I hope, sir, you have never sinned. Hmm. If a person does not have a forgiving spirit, that person may not truly be saved. You could be hard hearted and struggling from God, but if you have an unforgiving spirit, then you're not dispensing because you can't dispense what you don't know, what you haven't experienced. And and this is just a little aside, and I think I have time for it. (laughs) We'll see. for those of you who have children, grandchildren, and you look forward to them getting married one day, and you want them to have a good relationship, as we talked about a few weeks ago with the issue of divorce, no one says, can't wait to get married and get divorced. No one says that. We want our marriages to thrive and be healthy. But I think a lot of how they thrive and are healthy is how we enter into those relationships. With our heads up, on a swivel, what does God have to say? And there is a really good principle and truth that was passed on to me in my uh, College, uh, uh, graduate school years to to a wise man that I want to pass on to you that I've passed on to others that especially for those of you that are uh, teaching your children, your grandchildren of what it looks like to enter in that relationship, and for those of you that are longing for that kind of relationship to to be married, is there was this acronym that was given to me called faith, F A I T H, and I'm gonna I'm gonna start with A because I'm making a point here. A was just simply is the person available. Because sometimes we're like, I really like this person. She's cute. And so I'm going to go after her. But is she actually available? It, it, and not just is she available because she's not dating someone, is she available emotionally? Is she in a place where she needs to actually be in a relationship? The next is, is uh, integrity. Does this individual actually have integrity? Are they true to their word? Do they practice what they preach? Are they a hypocrite? Is it someone who says, yeah, I love Jesus. I go to church and they only show up maybe Christmas and Easter. And it's like, from what I read in scripture, you want to join yourself to someone who loves God with all their heart, with all their soul and with all their mind. Strength in there somewhere too. And so the next is teachable. Is the individual teachable? On on, on both sides, you ladies interested in a guy, guys interested in that lady. Is that person teachable? Because to me, that shows humility. Someone who doesn't think I've got it all figured out. I'm good to go. I don't need to learn anything else. We all need to grow. We all need to learn. Is that person teachable? Is there humility in their life? And the last one is a hunger for God. Is there a passion for the things of God? Because if we say as a follower of Christ, Christ is is sitting on the throne of my heart. He's in charge. He's it. I have a proper view of him. And then you join someone who says, really, I'm the center of my life but I'll tell you what you want to hear so that I can bag you, mount you on the wall like some kind of prized possession or animal. And it's like, no, do they have a hunger for God? But the first letter of faith is forgiveness. Do they forgive? Because every single one of us messes up. We say something we shouldn't, did something we shouldn't. Do we have a forgiving spirit? It's not that we go, oh, you hurt me. Uh, you sinned against me, you sinned against our marriage, and we go, that's fine, we'll just sweep it under the rug. No, 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 no. that's not what we're saying here. It's, it's there's consequences for sin, and there's trust that may be broken even, but it's this, especially in that in that uh, courtship period, that pursuing period, is when when you... interacting with individuals or with me and i and i do something that is off is there forgiveness or is it just quick condemnation and we never come back around is there forgiveness a part of the character of who you are as an individual and i will tell you because marriage is work and marriage is wonderful but marriage must have forgiveness because you will hurt one another It, it happens so forgiveness being essential At the end and the heart of this message uh, of of prayers, Jesus saying, man, be a person who is forgiving. And when you cry out to God and you say, God, would you forgive me? Verse Verse 12, forgive us our debts. When you're reminded that God, I need you to forgive me, it should move you to go, I need to forgive her. I need to forgive him. I need to forgive them so that I can go about in my life in the way that I need to. Finally, the next thing is real prayer runs to his protection. Verse 13, I wish... I I wish I was able to go deep dive into this because this is a passage that you might read in verse 13 when he says, do not lead us into temptation, that you could then go to a a parallel passage to study out of James chapter one on the issue of temptation. I don't have time to get into all of the uh, nitty gritty of it. So just take my study for, for, for what it is. When you're praying this, you're saying, God, I'm seeking that you would release me of the power and corruption of sin. I need divine enablement. to to, to flee from this kind of thing. It's, I've been pardoned, but I also need protection. What he's not saying is, don't tempt me, because we know in James chapter one, God does not tempt us. Rather, it's, don't overwhelm me. The word for tempt is the same word for trial in the Greek language, the original language here. It's saying, have mercy on me in the midst of testing, because I can't hold up for a prolonged amount of testing like Jesus. Jesus is, in the wilderness when he was tempted 40 days and 40 nights by, by Satan. It's saying Jesus can withstand the artillery of Satan for that amount of time. I can't. (laughs) It's too much. I can't withstand that kind of artillery. Father, don't allow me. Don't, don't, don't let it be that I would fall under temptation to where I'm, I'm overwhelmed. That trial or that test would just overwhelm me. That's what I'm crying out for. So, as we come to the end, it might be so. Then, what is prayer? What is prayer? Luther puts it this way He says, Prayer is much more God instructing us than it's ever been God being instructed by us. Prayer is much more God instructing us than it's ever been God being instructed by us. It's praying, Oh God, I come to you with the needs of my heart, display your glory. Prayer is communion. It isn't getting things. It isn't forcing God's hand to do something. It's opening your soul to the one who cares for you and the one who communes with you. A way to look at it is simply this. If you were to break down all of this into a nutshell, is this, God, I need your provision. Jesus, I need your pardon. Holy Spirit, I need your protection. Pray like that. God, I need your provision. Jesus, I need your pardon. Holy Spirit, I need your protection. I need you. What I don't need in my life is an assistant. What I need in my life is a savior. That's who I need right now, now and for eternity. And for us to receive this savior, we got to have a proper view and understanding of who he is to see just how big he is. Because when you see how big he is, you see how small you are. And if I'm that small, I need help. (laughs) I need Jesus. I need God the Father. I need the Holy Spirit within my life. My question to you is, have you come to know him personally? Have you come to know personally his grace, his mercy, and his love through faith in Jesus? That's how you come to know the Father. It's because of what Jesus accomplished upon the cross. It's not based upon what you can do and the amount that you pray. It's based upon Jesus crying out to his Father, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He seeks to pardon us by laying down his life. That's how good he is. So my question to you, regardless if you've grown up in church or this is your first time back in church, do you know that Jesus of scripture? Is your view, is your, is your view of that kind of God? Or do you have some kind of Americanized idea of what God is and what he looks like? Or is your God from the authority of scripture that I'm a sinner in need of a savior? And that's kind of hard and that's kind of bad news, but he will save me. And my life and my eternity will be forever changed. And on a daily basis, I can go to him and he will commune with me and I'll know my need of him. And the beautiful thing is, is even when I'm going through the hardest of storms, he knows what I need without even asking him. God is so good. He comes right up alongside us and is like, what you need right now is you need some help. Let me help you. One of the greatest stories I've ever seen. I like sports, so you're going to get those kind of stories. Some of you may remember this 1992 Olympics in Barcelona, Spain. It was the semifinal heat of the men's 400 meter run. This man by the name of Derek Redmond was believed that he would probably medal within, this, uh, within the Olympics that year. So he's definitely going to you know, get top three in the semifinals, go on to the finals. But as he was running, you can actually watch video of this on YouTube. Um, as he was running, he got probably about 150 meters into the race and his hamstring just snapped. And you just see him just fall. And there he goes. He tumbles onto the ground. And then you have these guys who are coming along aside him and trying to help him up and get him off of the track. And he's pushing them away because he has a race to finish. Sometimes when we run the race of life, we stumble, we hurt. It's hard. Will you choose to get up and keep pursuing the end? But as he's making his way around, he's literally... You can watch the video. He's literally on one leg just kind of doing this, just doing what he can to finish the race. And then, I don't think you would get away with this today, then he gets to about 100 meters, 150 meters left in the race. And all of a sudden, you see this man come up beside him, pick up the runner, drape his arm around him, and they begin to make their way. And other people are coming and trying to get him off the course. And this man is telling them to get away. We're finishing this race. We're finishing this race. And and you see that, that Derek Redmond, the runner, he couldn't finish it on his own because he stumbled, he couldn't get back up. But out comes this man. And what you find out afterwards in the press conference, this man is his father. His father came out of the stands and onto the track. He interceded and he picked up his son. And he said, we are finishing this race. So much so that I read one article of Derek Redman saying, get me back into lane five. That's my lane. I don't want to finish in lane one. I want to finish where I I started. You have a heavenly father who loves you. And so much so, if you'll allow me, that sometimes we think God is in heaven, just sitting there on his throne, just going, Good luck. But our God loves us so much that he couldn't just stay in the heavenlies. He descended in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, and he intervened into history and he did what we needed as he picked us up and he helps us finish this race. But, but as you can study in Ephesians, it wasn't that we were hobbling on a track trying to finish this race on our own. We're literally cold, Hard, unresponsive, dead, spiritually. And he doesn't just say, come on, I'll help you finish. He gave his life for us and he brings life into us. As much as the power was to resurrect Jesus, his son, he resurrects us into newness of life with Jesus. Do you know that, Jesus? Not that he threw a lifesaver at you and you through your effort were like, okay, now save me. It's, no, 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 he brought you to life by the sacrifice of his son. Do you know that, Jesus? Because when you get a proper view of that, whether you've been a believer for a long time or not, and some of you maybe have, and you're like, I've forgotten the glory and the grandeur and the majesty of my God, just just like the Grand Canyon. It's not just simply a picture that we go, wow, that's pretty. It's when I experience, taste, and see how big it is, it blows me away. When I get that proper view, it determines everything about how I live tomorrow and today and next week. Because a proper view of God determines a proper prayer life. It determines a proper just life.